Welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Laskowski, and with me today, a delightful returning guest, one of my favorite Chicagoans to talk movies with. She was most recently on for Celine Sciamma and Chantal Ackerman. Welcome back to the show, the great Kate Blair. Hi, Kate. Hi, thanks for having me again. Yay, I'm glad that you're here. We have a very interesting director to discuss, and... Uh, even some of the interviews I listened to with Sarah Polly, she uh, sort of laughs at just the fact that so many people, you know, do revere her for, you know, and she's only made three films. And uh, I, I, I happen to be one of those people that pretty early on was just uh, kind of floored by the fact that, uh, you know, a 28 year old, made something like uh, away from her. Yeah. I totally. saw that. So I was just kind of like, Oh boy. I mean, we'll get into that further. Uh, I, I think both this and the next episode, just to let people know, will be a little shorter in length only because this is the time of year where I start to focus on award season and screeners and finalizing my favorite films of the year, because there actually is a deadline for all this stuff being a member of the, Chicago Film Critics Association. So it's pretty much right around Thanksgiving time that I start getting inundated <laughs> with all sorts mm-hmm. of titles to catch up with and a lot I'm looking forward to. That's for sure. Uh, but I also have to confess up front to, to, to both you and Kate and the listening audience uh, that this episode is, is, is special mainly because all three of films by this director tap into something personal for me, whether it's, you know, the loss of memory and identity, uh, experiencing restlessness in a relationship or trying to understand a parent that, uh, passed away very young. So it's, it's, it's kind of, I'm kind of floored when I watch these three films in (laughs) how much I, I feel as I'm watching them because they directly reflect something I've experienced myself in some ways, definitely not in the same way per se, but uh, I I think the main reason why I love all the films is because at some point in time, I've wrestled with some of these ideas and themes through my own experiences. So we'll get to that for sure. But if it veers off into me talking about my own life (laughs) in the context of these films, mostly fictional stories. I hope people don't find it indulgent. And and, and frankly, I would hope that people are used to that since I have a tendency to experience, you know, kind of like transference or projection when watching a film or talking about it later. Cause I don't know. Isn't that kind of the goal for, for an artist is to like to connect on a deeper level rather than just, well, that was entertaining. What's for dinner, you know? 
Well, I think, I mean, Sarah, I watched an interview with her where she was talking about this. It might've been when you sent me, Jim. Mm. Um, she talks about how in, in adapting away from her, it's really kind of an adaptation of like her take on it or kind of like what she brought to the film or to the story that was written by Alice Monroe. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think, I mean, that makes sense. Um, like what are you, what else are you doing when you engage with the work, but sort of bringing, it's like an interaction with you and the artist and then that you create something independent. And I like, yeah. I appreciated that point of view from her um, in talking about how she adapted away from her. Um, and you can tell she had personal, um, a personal stake in that story too. She says that she was um, visiting a lot of homes like that because of her aging relatives. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think we all, especially where Alzheimer's is concerned, I think a lot of us <laughs> have that connection. Um, I I do too. Both of my grandparents, or on my father's side, both of my grandparents um, suffered from Alzheimer's disease. Mm. So there is <clears throat> definitely some familiarity too for me. It's so hard to know that 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 happens to some degree, whether if it's full blown dementia or Alzheimer's, but just due to growing old, certain, you know, neuronal processes in the brain start to uh, die away or in some, in some capacity. And obviously memory has always been a concern of mine. Cause I always felt like it's not as strong as I'd like it to be in some cases. I mean, I, I always kind of thought, well, maybe I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I should host a podcast because I have to have good recall of specific scenes or moments or things. Um, Cause there, there have been cases even recently where I go, Oh, I've, I've actually already watched this movie. How weird, but I sort of remember oh, it in fragments. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. I'm trying to remember a quote from like my film school or life about um, how film is like, I wish I could remember the quote exactly, but it's sort of like um, an experience that kind of disappears after you have it. That's kind of the nature of the medium. So I think that's like pretty common. <laughs> I definitely have yeah. trouble with it. Um, yeah, no, I know a lot of people who struggle with re- remembering plot details, especially and things like that. Uh, I, I, but it does. Yeah. Movies are like dreams to me sometimes. Cause there are moments where I wake up and I remember certain instances of, from the dream, but not the whole dream. You know, it's like, Oh, I remember this. I remember my cat showed up at one point, but I don't, I don't remember the context or how she even showed up there. I just remembered her being in there. (laughs) It's just funny. It's just funny how that works. You know, like you're basically, when you're asleep, you're making your own movie (laughs) in your head. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but it doesn't make sense most of the time or, you know, sometimes some things are very obvious too, but, uh, this is going to be great. I know it. And and in some weird way, watching something like stories we tell made me think of how podcasting is a version of that. Uh, it could be like reframed as conversations we have, (laughs) you know, I have a passion for listening to what people think and feel. And then certainly, the the process of creating something and recording it is as an act of archiving in the same way that, you know, she's sort of putting together uh, her own narrative and, and experiencing memories of, of her mother, but at the same time, their recreations, which, you know, I think 
people who first saw the film were very surprised and we'll get, we'll get deeper into that once we get to that film. But, uh, that's another just like, Oh man, how did this come together? This is just an amazing work of art. So, mm-hmm. uh, we'll be, Oh, and my cat agrees. Oh, hello. Hi Lucy. Yeah. I think she was, um, sometimes she gets a little disappointed that I'm not talking to her, but I'm talking into a microphone instead. She's a little confused by that. Well, it's nice to hear her voice on here. Oh, thanks. Yeah. As always, we do talk about something other than the director of the episode up front. And we're going to do that with what I like to call the What We Watched Recently segment. (laughs) So let's transition over to that conversation right now. seen recently other than Sarah Polly's work I, I, I anything new or old or you know any, any anything you want to bring up I got a couple of new titles to talk about but whatever you oh, want to talk about first um I don't, I've had like an attention span issue lately <laughs> where I've been mostly watching tv sure um, that's fine yeah and that's like mostly been succession I've like rewatched. I need to see this show everybody's talking about it yeah, I, I mean, I recommend it, definitely. Um, What's it about? It's about a crazy family, right? <laughs> That's all I kind of know. It's like um, uh, Arrested Development, <laughs> maybe. Oh, um, okay. But in a more like dramatic fashion. But it re- those two shows remind me of each other a lot. They're just like dysfunctional business families um, <laughs> where... Uh, they actually are very similar now that I'm thinking about it. It's just sort of like this patriarch um, business owner um, who just sort of <laughs> enjoys pitting his children against each other <laughs> for like um, small roles in the business. And he's like, I think he's supposed to be like a Rupert Murdoch type. Like he has um, just like disgustingly wealthy um, owns verticals and all kinds of random um, businesses like news is the primary thing, but there's also, um, cruises and, uh, parks, which is like really <laughs> funny and random. Um, and you get the feeling that, I mean, it's all about money. They're just like purchasing whatever they can to make them more money. So none of it really makes a lot of sense together. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just like really fabulous, even though, um, none of the characters are likable. Like they're not supposed to be, um, they're pretty much downright evil. And yet the power dynamics are just kind of fascinating to watch. So um, there's no one to root for really. Um, well, I root for a lot of them because <laughs> like, they're definitely like psychopaths, but, um, you still care about them in some weird way, especially I think Kieran Culkin's character, a lot of people root for. <clears throat> okay. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure he's great. Cause they've all, they've all just got these like um, kind of sweet flaws that make them real people. Um, but then they'll do go like turn around and do something that's just like jaw droppingly horrible. And you're like, Oh yeah, <laughs> this person is terrible. Um, but I think one of the things I really like about it is that um, it's sort of like 
a show that really trusts its actors um, to like just kind of riff. Um, nice. And so like it focuses a lot on like micro facial expressions. Like I feel like the most compelling thing about it is just when someone says off something like completely off the wall and then um, you'll get like a flash of everyone responding to it, like with their eyes basically. Cause like the people, and it's especially funny when they're just like supporting people, like, the communications person who doesn't have any real power, but so they can't actually say what they mean. So they kind of say it with oh. their face. <laughs> it's, it's really good. I like it a lot. Okay. So it's created by Jesse Armstrong. Don't, I don't know. Oh, okay. Co-creator of the show peep show. Um, and received, Oh, uh, a, a nomination for best adapted screenplay for co-writing the very funny film in the loop. Yeah. Uh, Wow. Yeah, okay. Those people. Yeah. And I, I'm a fan of the uh, actress Sarah Snook. Who, oh, uh, she's really good. I mean, yeah. they're all really good, but yeah, she's great. Yeah. I remember seeing her in a, in this like science fiction, kind of a time travel thriller of sorts. I've I, I've I recall. Yeah. yeah Predestination is interesting. <laughs> I don't know if it was entirely successful, but I remember, her being it's like really based great. on William Gibson or something. I don't remember exactly, but yeah, it was like kind Definitely of bad. Inspired, me, but. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It it wasn't a great movie. Like I felt like the premise was interesting, but the execution wasn't as strong, especially as it went on. But I just go, okay. I want to. I want to see what else Sarah Snook does in the future. And apparently, she's on this show. Of course, you got the great Brian Cox. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I'm yeah, I got to get on this because it seems like a lot of people are talking about it. Oh, and there's an episode titled in the first season <laughs> Shit Show at the Fuck Factory, which is not something I would expect uh, a show to be titled, and that's my <laughs> curiosity. Uh, an episode, I should say, an episode is titled that. I think most of the ti- the show titles are ripped from dialogue. So there's kind ah. of a moment in everyone where you're like, oh, there's like, there's the title <laughs> <laughs> shit show at the fuck factory or whatever it is. Wow. Okay. So it's in its third season currently. It's only 10 episodes per season. I can get, I can, I can binge on that at some point. Yeah. Yeah. It's I recommend one, it. It's, it's not I mean, one of those shows. that's like, you know, 20 episodes long. So. Yeah. It's just like very, very well done from top to bottom. It's like really good writing. And then the actors are really good. The filmmaking was really smart. I don't know if you call it filmmaking and TV, but um, it's just like incredibly well done. (laughs) And especially if you're like, it's just like fun to admire it sometimes. Yeah. No, I mean the, I, th- there are certain shows that I, I get really excited to sit down and watch mainly because of the actors or the characters and the interactions they have. Certainly Arrested Development was that, even if it was more done in the unconventional sitcom approach, but yet in its own way was very original. And I think uh, a, a lot of shows kind of aspired to that style. Uh, and this one sounds like a dark comedy, but also it has moments of uh, drama involved. So, okay, cool. I want to talk about <clears throat> two films this time because one of which I should be relatively brief 
on for a couple of reasons. Let's start with the one <laughs> that I think everyone knows I would be excited to talk about at length, and I think I will for the year-end episode. Wow, you're good at this. How'd you, <laughs> how'd you guess? I want to see that so badly. Um, I'll get to it. Yeah, well, I, it's it's weird to have a – I don't know if it's weird to have a press screening practically a month before it's supposed to open wide. Because originally I thought it was coming out like literally the Friday after Thanksgiving. And I'm like, oh, I can wait. But then I kept hearing it's not it's only opening in New York and LA the day after oh, Thanksgiving. Chicago with these things. It's very yeah. frustrating. Yeah, but I, I guess officially it opens on Christmas Day in Chicago. <laughs> Which that's one of the reasons why I don't want to go into great detail because not a lot of people are gonna see it yet. Um Yet at the same time, everyone knows that Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite director. I rarely go to advanced press screenings because I'm like, well, I can I can wait and I'll see it when I can see it. But uh, the moment I got an invite to see Licorice Pizza, what am I going to do? Am I, I'm not going to go to that. Of course I'm going to go. <laughs> you know, I, I but I, I also don't like being that that voice on Twitter either. Like, I saw it. I'm amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I don't know. We live in the time of instant reactions and t- putting it out into the universe. And I certainly had my own version of that. I did it, but I'm also like, I need time much like his other films to process it and also see it again. Cause there's uh-huh. rarely an instance of me as much as I love Paul Thomas Anderson and especially his last few films, I, the moment they're over, I go, well, I have to see that again. I know I loved it, but I have to see it again to really understand it or decide how much I love it, or maybe I'll love it less. I don't know. It's it's, I, I remember a, a few years ago thinking uh, about my decision to really continue with movie podcasting and, and, and film criticism in general, just because I wasn't feeling as much joy uh, for one reason or another, I'm not sure, but I then went to see Phantom Thread at the music box. And the moment Johnny Greenwood's p- piano score begins playing and we watch Daniel day Lewis start his day and all those seamstresses walk down the stairs. I actually had goosebumps and thought to myself, okay, I love movies. What's what's wrong with me? I know I do. <laughs> yeah. Movies are amazing, and this director just just like taps into my heart and soul in ways that I have trouble articulating sometimes because it's like, again, we talk about the subconscious to some degree, and I, I feel like he and someone like David Lynch just do that for me, and I don't even know if it's I can put it into words. I just feel it, um, mm-hmm. but. I also have a tendency to walk into some movies with high expectations and that trailer for licorice pizza. I was just kind of like, Oh my God, I'm going to love this. Aren't I? Right. Well, Hmm. So (laughs) there's, you know, been a couple of times where I walk out of a Paul Thomas Sanderson movie, not necessarily feeling euphoric. And uh, that would include the first time I saw inherent vice. Uh, Mm Hmm. I left with a question mark hanging over my head with that one. Several viewings later, it's become possibly my favorite of his. It's really hard to to decide that because honestly, 
just about any of his films, the moment I'm watching them, they're my favorite of his. Cause I just love everything he's done to some degree or another, even if, you know, it's like something like Heart Eight is definitely a feature debut. So I don't necessarily feel the passion uh, for that one the way I do for the majority of his films. But on first viewing, this one sits squarely in the middle of my Paul Thomas Anderson rankings. Uh, I was surprised that for the most part, it's relatively straightforward. It's kind of a hangout movie mixed with a coming of age romance. And you get that impression from the trailers. Um, Mm -hmm. it doesn't get quite as weird and like, like some choices he's made in a lot of his films, you kind of go, Whoa, that, huh? (laughs) Wasn't expecting that. Uh, and that's not to say I didn't love this movie because I, I, I'm pretty much wired to love what he does with filmmaking. Uh, the lead actors, uh, the, uh, Cooper Hoffman plays Gary and a lot of Hyam plays Alana. <laughs> and mm-hmm. without question, they are the reason to see this because you are witnessing stars being born right before your eyes. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Alana Hayam gets some award recognition because it's just one of those you you know as you're watching it that she's remarkably gifted and naturalistic mm-hmm. and just lights up the screen and I'm <laughs> just kind of like that uh, her performance alone is reason for celebration and you'll feel that euphoria every time she's on screen and certainly we have a strong connection to uh, Cooper Hoffman for obvious reasons that this is the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm curious about, about that performance. Yeah. They're both great. They really, really sell this movie. Um, You know, it's, it's again, it's not going to go into great detail about what happens obviously, but it's basically, you know, Cooper Hoffman plays Gary and he, he falls in love with Alana who is a decade older than him. And it basically sort of decide on making it a friendship that goes through these kind of ups and downs and these weird detours. That, oh, hi puppy. Uh, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Should I turn off my mic or... We can we can wait until okay. until he's had his say. <laughs> I, I can't wait to see licorice pizza. That's what <laughs> um. Anyway, I uh, yeah. So they they have these detours as to like what they want to do with their lives separately, more or less. And then there's a you know a crazy encounter with Bradley Cooper. Uh, who plays, I believe his name is John Peters, who was with Barbara Streisand at the time. Uh, my my main critique is that when Bradley Cooper shows up, I kind of I wanted more of him because it is this unhinged performance that is like, whoa. Uh, <laughs> it's so out there. <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of like, I guess that's the only like instance of like, wow, that, that's the weird Paul Thomas Anderson touch here is involving this character and what he does. Uh, mm, but it's really short. Like I, I, I'm not saying like the trailer sells the fact that he's going to be in this for a very long period of time or anything. Cause it is the story of Gary and Alana essentially, but 
I, th- I, th- I, th- I, I ended up a little disappointed <laughs> that there's not more uh, unhinged craziness from Bradley Cooper because uh, yeah, you'll, you'll know more. You'll see why. Uh, uh, and I, I, again, I don't want to go into great detail because I want everyone to be surprised and delighted by what I might, what, what could be his most straightforward film that combines like the setting and time period of inherent vice with the sort of wide eyed romanticism of punch drunk love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet it's something a little, little different, a little different from him. Uh, and I, I ended up warmly embracing it without being over the moon, you know? And I, I guess I shouldn't expect, you know, like even my favorite director to, you know, make me feel over the moon every single time they make a movie either. But I, 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 obviously I'm recommending this. I want more people to see it. I want to see what their reactions are. Uh, especially you, (laughs) of course, um, be sure to let me know when you see it. Cause, uh, yeah, I definitely want to, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty special. And I, I expect to talk about it and it'll be very interesting to talk with Patrick about it on the year end episode. If he ends up seeing it and I expect him to, cause we don't always see eye to eye on Paul Thomas Anderson's film. So it could be an interesting discussion. Um, the other film I want to talk about played at the Chicago critics film festival. And it's a documentary that you can now view on Netflix and it's called procession. <sighs> but I also have to say this, um, this comes with a trigger warning involving sexual abuse and trauma in ways that are often heartbreaking to witness. Um, but I also bring this documentary up in relation to stories we tell, because they would make an interesting double feature in how they challenge and subvert your expectations about what a documentary can do. Um, we are introduced to six men in this film, Tom, Dan, Joe, Ed, Michael, and Mike. And they are survivors of uh, sexual assault by Catholic priests in, in Kansas city. And they obviously have experienced this collective pain and, um, you know, trauma that can't necessarily, there's no closure. They, 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 they openly admit that, everything they've been through is still affecting them to this very day. And a lot of that also has to do with the fact that they haven't received any justice from, from the courts or the Catholic church or any number of factors that ultimately sort of try to bury what's happened or they just don't want to admit uh, wrongdoing. And it's really upsetting, but what they ultimately decide to do with the help of a drama therapist is to tell their own stories by creating these individual short films, which in turn kind of allows them to process their anguish um, in this creative way, but also with the help of one another as the cast and the crew. So it's this, it's this unbelievable collaboration with these incredibly vulnerable men as they sort of, embark on this cathartic therapeutic experience and they sort of write and act out these scenes as a way of addressing the trauma. Um, so you're experiencing art as healing, uh, in a way that's very emotional, but kind of heartbreaking, but you, you feel, you feel what they're feeling. And, and in the end of when they're done creating these films, there is a sense of 
not closure again, but just a feeling of I've at least done something positive with what happened to me and I'm facing it head on in a way that most people probably would do in individual therapy or group therapy, but they're also making art um, in ways that you get to witness, not just the making of it, but the actual films too. Uh, the uh, the end result of what they're working on. So to say I, w- I was in tears through a lot of this would be kind of an understatement because um, it's one of those films where empathy and compassion is inevitable. Um, mm-hmm. You know, watching watching these men cry and 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 discuss openly what's happened, but how they're able to work through it in this really exceptional way. Um, it does feel like you're sitting in on a therapy session, but um, in a way that's very similar to one of my favorite documentaries that I've seen in the past 10 years or so, it's called the work where it's about a bunch of prison inmates who openly talk about their past and their issues in group therapy to the point of actually scream therapy in some cases, which is just unreal to experience. Um, that that documentary was just like again an endless amount of crying on my part too, but also you're seeing uh, a a bunch of prisoners and criminals go through catharsis. Um, so this film uh, procession was made by Robert Green, who has been making these interesting nonfiction experiments in very unconventional ways, kind of like blending performance with reality. In um, in these films, uh, Kate plays Christine. Uh, mm-hmm. And okay. Bis- Bisbee 17, those are the two ones I think he's most known for. But uh, I think he did really incredible work with Procession. Uh, but obviously, I-, I can't stress enough that this is not an easy film to watch in, in a lot of cases uh, for a lot of people who've maybe experienced some form of trauma um, or sexual abuse. You just sort of have to go in knowing that. Um, but at the same time, this is not about exploiting that in any way, but these, these men sort of face it and it's kind of a, huh, like you do have to take a, a breath when it's over because you have, you've been through a lot watching it along with these men. Um, so it's, they come away feeling like they've learned something about themselves and, maybe you know the the future will be better after having dealt with it in this way so i just i i was really impressed with this film um it's one of the better documentaries i've seen in a while and it's available on netflix so yeah that sounds fascinating and i'm glad it is it is and that also i think people can have different reactions to this process to what they're doing to also how much the drama therapist gets involved or the, you know, the director and is, I, I mean, I can't imagine somebody watching this and feeling like it is exploiting what they've been through in any way. I don't, cause I certainly didn't experience it. I didn't think it, it didn't create that sort of discomfort, but I also can see the possibility of somebody having, uh, I don't want to say the wrong <laughs> response because it's, obviously subjective, but um, it's just intense and, and personal. And, and some people may not think, well, this should be entertainment, quote unquote, you know, I think people might feel a, a lot of conflicting feelings about it too. So 
Yeah, that makes sense. But in a way, I think that I I think is is important. So, all right, that's uh, that's the what we watch segment. We are going to now talk about the director of the episode, the one, the only Sarah Polly. So I can start with kind of a brief background for those who aren't familiar with with Sarah Polly. She got her start in um, she kind of start very young in Canadian television, but she sort of showed this like rebellious streak pretty early on, kind of dropping out of acting as a teenager for a little while to focus on politics. But my first experience with her was seeing her in a film called Go, back. Mm-hmm. In 1999, yeah, I think so, because I just kept hearing like, "Oh, this is a it's it's very Pulp Fiction esque." So I went to see that, uh, and it's like, yeah, three individual stories that all sort of come together in some way. Uh, but I just thought she lit up the screen and really stood out in that film, and was kind of thrilled to watch anything else that she had been in or that she was going to be in. So she had been acting for quite a while. And at one point she crossed paths with Cameron Crowe and she was considered, I, I mean, I'm t- I think she was pretty much ready to sign uh, on to the role of Penny Lane in almost famous. Yeah. That was but, a wild thing to learn um, because it just doesn't seem right at all, but. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that would have worked. It's, it's so crazy to me because like, I think that's the only time I've liked Kate Hudson is in that movie. <laughs> I feel exactly the same way. And there's that one shot with her in that movie. I'm like, wow, this is actually like really amazing. Um, where mm-hmm. just like the camera rests on her and like all these ex- different expressions kind of flicker over her face. Um, oh, which is yeah. like a standout in the movie for me. And I can't imagine Sarah Polly doing that. Not because she's not talented. It's just not really her, her persona. I don't think, but maybe she yeah. realized that. You I know? think she did. Yeah. <laughs> she has the self-awareness, I think, to know like if this is going to work or not, or if she's feeling connected to this story in that way. And I mean, gosh, the interview, I'm, I'm linking to a bunch of inter- interviews in the show notes only because she's so articulate and intelligent. And again, has so much self-awareness. It's, I'm like, yeah, I, it, I feel like she's a really generous um, interview subject. Yes, absolutely. From watching her and listening to her. I want there to be a Sarah Polly podcast. I want, I want to hear her thoughts on everything. Um, yeah. Like within the past few years, she's signed up on Twitter and I, I know that uh, she, she, she's very active on there and says a lot of, you know, very interesting things on sociological and political stances and, at the same time, I know she's hard at work on something now, but back then, you know, once she decided not to sign on to be an almost famous, she was kind of questioning whether or not she still wanted to be an, an actress at all and kind of experienced after that, like a period period of uncertainty and depression. And then 
she caught up with Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line, and that sort of changed her. She saw that movie and was like, oh, movies can be this? Oh, my God. I I actually do love movies more than I thought. (laughs) And from that point forward, she she felt motivated to pursue filmmaking and writing again. Um, And she occasionally acted in a few things here and there, but uh, ultimately she, she realized she just didn't want to pursue that in the way, like she doesn't have the ambition she described to be an actress. And that makes sense because I think she's destined for even more. And then uh, obviously she came across this short story called the bear came down the mountain by Alice Monroe. And it immediately spoke to her. She sat down to adapt it and ultimately became the source material for her first feature length debut called away from her, not to be confused with the way we go. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, before I share my thoughts on this film, Kate, why don't you tell me your first experience with Polly and your general impressions? Uh, your first her? experience with Polly? Yeah, oh, okay. I'm just curious. Yeah. Like, what was it? Was it with through her acting? I imagine it was through her acting. Yeah, um, a few different things. I think the first time I remember, like, knowing who she was, was the Sweet Hereafter. Oh, think, yeah, so good. Yeah, um, good little Canadian movie with Adam McGoyan, um, or directed by Adam McGoyan, and it's just like, um, it's an amazing movie. But like, she is the thing I remember the most like her performance in it mm-hmm. um, just because she's, I mean, it's been such a long time since I saw it now, but there's like, um, I think a sense of her, she either lies or just kind of like covers up the truth or just like, isn't entirely truthful. Um, and in this very pointed way that um, I just like think about her face a lot. Uh, she was just like, and I think you have to, I guess you fo- you focus on her face in that movie because part of the thing is that she's paralyzed, um, right? Yeah. If I'm remembering this correctly. No, that's bus. absolutely true. She went through some very serious trauma. And the whole yeah. town is collectively going through trauma at the same yeah. time. Yeah, I need to revisit this because I remember, yeah, me I mean, I love, I love Adam Egoyan, Um And that was the first one I watched of his. So it sent me down like an Egoyan hole. <laughs> but I also... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that was how when I first recognized Sarah Polly, but I had seen her and stuff before that. I think the first time I saw her was probably um, the Dawn of the Dead remake. Oh, um, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was in 2004. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was probably like the first time I did not know who she was. I was just like watching this on the couch with my cousins over a holiday of some kind. Um but yeah, she's like, I mean, she's just like a very, she is a great actress, even if it's not her, her true passion. I think she like definitely has a commanding presence. Um, her eyes are just very like, I don't know, big and like kind of very emotive, but also kind of steely. Um, so yeah. she has like a definite um, presence that's really interesting. Um, and then... I'm trying to remember which of the movies of hers I saw first. I think it was, um, I feel like it was stories we tell. That was the first one. It might've been take the swaltz. <laughs> I know I was aware. Of, um, Speaking of memory. Yeah. It's hard to remember. Yeah. <laughs> I was aware of away from her. Um, but because I do have so much history in my family of Alzheimer's disease, it was just something I avoided watching for a really sure. long time. 
Um, but I was definitely in a better place to watch it recently. So I saw it for the first time just a few days ago. Um, it was amazing. Yeah. And I know that, um, I don't know if people are curious, but we won't be talking about um, Alias Grace, which is a six-part miniseries. I believe it's still on Netflix, um, uh, an adaptation of Margaret Atwood's novel of the same name. She, I believe, just wrote it. And I don't think she directed any episodes. I'm not 100% sure. It certainly got very good reviews, uh, and I've been meaning to watch it being a huge fan of hers. I just kind of went, well, I don't know. She didn't direct it, but it was still a passion project of hers. And it's something yeah. that I, I will definitely catch up with. I started uh, watching it and didn't continue. Um, but I kind of like, I actually didn't, don't think I was aware that she was participating in it. I was interested in it because I like, even though Margaret Atwood as a person lately has been like sharing some really questionable things mm. on Twitter. Like writers just should never have gotten Twitter. It's not good. <laughs> but I, as a writer, a lot of her stuff I do like. Um, so mm-hmm. I was interested in that adaptation and I like the actress Sarah Gadon, Sarah Gadon. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but she's also a Canadian actress. Oh, she's right. Yeah. She's been in some Cronenberg films. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I really like her. Um, so maybe I'll try that again, but it didn't stick the first time. Yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm curious about it. I mean, it's it's uh, it looks like it's mainly a Canadian production, and it's directed by. Um, let's see if I don't know if every episode was or not. Let me double check real quick. But I th- okay, yeah, no, every episode was directed by Mary Heron. Oh well, that's cool. That's another. <laughs> yeah. uh, Going back to, yeah, like I shot Andy Warhol's a great film, uh, American Psycho, obviously, Notorious Betty Page, kind of underrated. Uh, I didn't didn't, I want to. Yeah, the, 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 the others afterwards, I, I don't know if they're, I didn't see them, but I didn't hear good things about Moth Diaries. Uh, but I, I'm curious. I will go, I will definitely check it out. Um, so there's still some more of Sarah Polly's work out there, but we're focusing on the three films and it's interesting going through these three films because I almost lumped them into seasons <laughs> Yeah, because the first one away from her, it's winter. It's clueless. It is so cold and you can feel it. And you know, they, well, they like really the point. Yeah. That they, that one is like very wintry and then take this waltz is like very molten summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there isn't like, really a season I associate with the third one, but yeah, those no, are- I mean, I, I, part of me is like, I guess we can call it autumn <laughs> <laughs> just to fit the silly narrative, but I don't know if that's necessarily true. I don't know if it feels like a, an autumn film per se, but you know, it kind of does though with like, the the outfits that they wear in those reenactments and like yeah. something about the super the super eight itself is kind of has like an autumny color palette to it. So I, I think can we see could, that. I think we could say that maybe. Mm. One of these days, I'll 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 run it past her and see what she thinks. <laughs> but, but then I uh, will be like, well, she's going to probably put out a fourth film maybe next year or the year after. So we'll see how, what season that could fall into. But. Um, you, you mentioned Adam McGoyan and 
essentially, I think that he was a mentor for her. And there are times when you can kind of sense his influence, especially again, the bitter cold and snow from the sweet hereafter finding mm-hmm. their way in, into this story. Um, her style is very subtle. Uh, it's, I don't want to say like, Oh, she just, you know, points the camera and shoots and let the actors do their thing. Cause I think there is a lot more to it than that. There are certain choices in certain moments. I, um, I was trying to think of some connections here and there. Um, I think I th- <sighs> there are definite like uh, a moment, a moment or two I can sort of connect with the first two films involve like these overhead two shots of couples in bed. Mm-hmm. And like it sort of captures their intimacy, but also their distance at the same time. Like they're like they're together in bed, but maybe not, you know, there's still, there's still um, a certain disconnect at the same time. I always go, wow, that's a, I always like that shot. And whenever I see it, when you, you know, it's overhead and you see the two people lying down together like that, um, almost like you're a fly on the wall or something. But I, I gotta say that, um, yeah, away from her is really something uh, special. You know, I'm. She really uh, no, knows compassion in regards to like these people, and I'm, I'm so taken with these actors and, and and these the characters and the setting and the score and the use of a Neil Young song at one point. Oh, that song! It's yeah. Just, it's so romantic, but sad at the same time. And, you know, the difficulties these people face in the midst of growing old and developing this incurable disease. I just, I, I, I get really wrapped up in the tenderness and humanity uh, that she brings to this story. I, I mean, I, I, I can't remember if Julie Christ, I, she must've been nominated, I would think for, for best actress at the time, but I think, yes, she was. Um, I don't know if that for at least a few, I don't know if she got an Oscar nomination, but now I want to check. Yeah. I movies about memory really get to me. Like I mentioned, and I think, you know, what really stays with me is what I felt during this movie and pretty much all three at the same time. It's just, it's just incredible that she's such an assured, confident voice at such a young age and I think we should, you know, treasure her work, even though again, it's three films. And and in this one, um, I think maybe the only critique I have is some lines do sound literary. I mean, r- I think some of the movie's dialogue is taken verbatim from Munro's story. And yeah. I guess sometimes that can feel a little unnatural when placed into the, you know, the, the actor's mouths in a way. And, I mean, they yes. sell it for sure, but I really think like that—that's the only thing I kind of go. Hmm, I don't know if that line works or it, it sounds too written to some degree. But yeah, I think I did. I watched an interview with her where she talks about her um, adaptation, and that is true. She definitely takes um, some of the third-person narration and divvies it up and puts it into some characters' mouths. Um, and I think her reasoning for doing that, she said, was like when it was a line she just couldn't get let go of. Um, mm. 
Which makes sense. But yeah, I think you're right. There are like, it can be kind of unnatural. Um, but then she also talks about, um, and this is like dialogue in the, not dialogue. This is writing that didn't make its way into dialogue, but was used to inform um, Julie Christie's performance. Um, just like, let me, I read this story. And there was just like a beautiful line that apparently Julie Christie just like kind of made live on her face. <laughs> like, even though they didn't say it, I think she knew those words and they informed the way she performed the part, which is like at the very end um, when, when Grant is bringing, yeah, is bringing Brie to her um, and just kind of, a lot like her face is saying a lot <laughs> that um just like kind of speaking um alice monroe's words <laughs> through her face um yeah and i also uh from my research <laughs> have understood that she in adapting this um like had all of these actors in mind already um which is and like and I think it's part of like the nature of growing up in the industry that she was able to get them um, because she probably yeah. has just connections that not any screenwriter would have, but she was able to imagine Julie Christie in this part and then actually get Julie Christie to play the role, which I took some, it took some convincing though. Took some her. convincing. Yeah. But I love that anecdote too. Mm-hmm. And like, you can really feel that. Because I love Julie's, Julie Christie's performance in this, and it does feel very, uh, it's hard to imagine anyone else doing it. It does feel just like her. Um, and I, I love I loved her performance so much. It was probably my favorite part about this movie. Um, yeah, and I, I certainly love Gordon Pinsent as well, and I'd never seen him before in my life in anything. Um, yeah, I haven't either, but apparently she had him in mind too. But yeah, I don't, I'm not as familiar with him as an actor. He's a Canadian actor, apparently. Yeah. So much is said in his face as well in so many moments. And uh, yeah. And, and um, the, the, the actor that plays Aubrey, Michael Murphy comes from the world of uh, Robert Altman. He was in a lot of Altman films. That makes sense. And Olivia yeah. Dukakis plays, uh, his wife, well, um, she's great. Yeah. always great. Yeah. That's, that's the thing too, to like, it almost feels like take this waltz would have been the first film you make in your twenties or something. Cause you're capturing, you're, 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 you're telling a story about people around your own age and to sort of not do that, uh, and decide this is the story I want to focus on still to me says volumes about her, um, her tenderness and, and sort of just like really wanting to understand, you know, uh, human beings, even at this period of time when they're losing their sense of self or questioning, how can they maintain what they once had when it's slowly slipping away? I think that that's to me is like the saddest thing to think about is too, is like, I, I, you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily, learn about the disease itself necessarily. I, but you learn what it, what it looks like to deal with it 
as a spouse and also how difficult of a process it is to lose someone, even if they're still alive, you know, right. that, oof, you know, and that's, that's something I think we all have a fear of, like we talked about early on. Uh, but it's not like lingering on that necessarily, you know, in, in like that movie, the father was something that again, I had to take a very deep breath as I'm watching it because it basically places you in the mindset of someone who is losing their sense of time and place. Uh, and Anthony Hopkins, obviously, I mean, he, he, he won an award for that film and rightfully so, cause he's fantastic in that film, but it's also, Ooh, man, it's, it's so hard to experience what he's experiencing, even though I think it's really audacious of a director to go ahead and do that. Uh, and I, I th- but I think I prefer the simplicity and grace and gentleness of away from her just a little bit more because the other version of it is really jarring. And obviously if you're experiencing dementia, every day must be jarring for you. So I realized that's the choice that that filmmaker made for the father. Uh, yeah. It's a different story, obviously. One so. of the things that I believe Polly added into the script that wasn't in the Monroe book was this line that really stuck with me. Um, when Grant is asking her why or like why she's taken up with Aubrey essentially, um, or like what it is about him. And she just says that he doesn't confuse her. Um, And that's just like, so heartbreaking, but also it's just kind of like, I don't know. I mean, it's very direct and she's being honest. That's yeah. She's being honest. And like, I don't think there's, like people change. And I think this is like, I mean, this is something that comes up again and again in these three movies is that like relationships change, people change. And this is just like mm. a, a more um, uncommon, well, not uncommon because it's actually very common <laughs> to have Alzheimer's um, kind of interfere with your life this way, but just kind of a more, um, I guess, ostentatious example of how people can change really radically quickly um, and yeah. how we might not be compatible with them anymore. Um, and that's not like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just kind of the nature of life. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And I, yeah, I think just like the whole scenario with her and Aubrey is very interesting because it's completely, it's mostly physical, um, it's mostly just like her wheeling him around and kind of like helping him hold his cards and he doesn't, he doesn't talk. Um, so there's just like them being comfortable and like physical together, which is, I think another thing that comes up in her other movies. Oh yeah. An interest in the way people physically are together and like how they read each other. Um, which I think is really neat especially in take this waltz. I think I noticed a lot of that going on. Oh yeah. 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 She, she lingers on just how two people are together. And like the moments that you probably have with your own partner that you don't necessarily would want to, <laughs> you know, put on film and have other people see. It's just your intimate awkwardness that only you share with another person that is used to you (laughs) and like it's comfortable with your quirks in a way. Like 
that's the stuff that I think really resonates with me in that film as well. But here, um, oh, yeah, the the the, the Aubrey relationship, it like she does at times fill the role of like a caretaker for him, but clearly there's some sort of connection because they're both experiencing the same ailment. Uh, and Grant is forced to be on the outside looking in. Like when he's just sitting there kind of observing them, that's, that's hard. I almost yeah. feel like he's torturing himself by doing that. Yeah. You know, I mean, And it's like, he's trying, like, I think a note I wrote down when I was watching this movie is that eventually they inhabit, they're just like in different realities. Yeah. At a certain point, And they can't really breach, like broach those two realities. And I mm. think not like, I mean, the point isn't for me to be like, Grant should have done this, but I'm kind of like, if I were Grant, I would try like, like probably try to meet her a little bit more where she is than try to like bring her back into this, like all these histories that she's losing. But that's just. Yeah. When he confronts her at one point, that's really difficult to, to, uh, I mean, it's hard on her, but it's also just really hard to watch because you understand why he's doing it, but it's not the right choice to like sort of confront her suddenly and be like, I am your husband. You would never wear that sweater. You know, right. that's, that's just going to cause more alienation. I would think, I think that's actually adding to the confusion. Um, you know, I mean, eventually he sort of learns patience over time. Uh, it's, it's like, like any relationship, you kind of have to adapt and sort of forge ahead and just hope that the other person is going to be okay. And I mean, I don't know. How do you feel about that, that facilities, uh, you know, th- this assisted living uh, place, their decision or their, I guess their rule basically to separate the spouse for 30 days. I realize they have the, the reasoning is, well, they can get settled in that way. And yeah. And I like, um, how the nurse, I oh, forget. She's so good. Yeah, the kind nurse um, is basically like, I think this is a, really a policy for the staff, not for the patients yeah. or their families, which feels true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know um, Sarah Polly, I think part of the reason she chose to adapt this when she did is because she was going through it in her own life. Um, so that's why it resonated her, with her so strongly which feels real to me because I remember another thing I wrote down as I was watching it was like that it felt very familiar and true to home um, to my experiences visiting my, my grandma in assisted living. And I like got the sense from watching it that she knew about it, that she'd like been through it because she replicated it pretty effectively. I thought. Um, So I think there is like some critique of the system that she added in there that wasn't necessarily in the book. Um, yeah, that's 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 important scary. to note. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because like that's kind of just like a throwaway thing in the book. Like, oh yeah, you can't see her for thirty days, uh, and Sarah Polly added like some more commentary in there. Um, which yeah, I think I think those places are really hard, <laughs> and I think um, the character. Apparently she's so she split the nurse character in the story into two characters into like the kind nurse and then like the administrator person who's more like these are the rules. Um, mm-hmm. We're just like trying to like keep things running here, um, which is like 
really real, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, definitely. It's just like a difficult, it's a really difficult thing to have to do to realize that you can't help someone on your own because like our, like we're just not set up in our culture to have the support we need to take care of someone at home like that in general. Uh -uh. Um, So I think institutions like these are like, they're kind of necessary, but then there's also definitely like um, a lot of judgment (laughs) that goes into putting someone you love in one of those places. And I think Grant talks a little bit about that too. Um, But yeah, I think that's part of what it brought up for me was just like, this is a very imperfect place she's in. Um, And it's just like, I think the nature of living in a place like that is that it kind of makes you deteriorate maybe a little faster than you would. And like, That's that's what she goes through. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happens to her. But if you don't have family, like they don't, they don't have kids. Um, They apparently don't have anyone to help them through this. So it's kind of like, what else is he going to do? I don't know if people are emotionally equipped to handle it. You know, the, because it can get really intense. There can be outbursts. There can be anger. There can be any number of reactions to something like they, they could, they could be looking at a pair of scissors and have no idea what it is and freak out. Right. You know, and that's, that's a scary experience for them. And then you have to have the right response and maybe that you won't have the right response and that just will make them more angry. So it's, it, it makes sense that there are people who are, trained in a facility like this to handle it. But I, I, I do have mixed feelings about, and it's, and it's the thing that goes into aging in general with just like, Oh, they're going to just put me in a nursing home and leave me alone. And that's it. You know? And I understand, especially people of a certain age, having that feeling of, they're abandoning me. My family just wants to get rid of me or whatever. And that's that. And that's not necessarily the case, but it's, I understand why they might feel that way too. Um, yeah. and given these environments, they're not they're Like you said, they're, they're imperfect and they're going to make mistakes. They're not going to know how to handle every situation. They have to adapt because it's, it's such a, it's such a devastating disease that even doctors don't know how to, necessarily treated outside of like, you know, giving them medications and, you know, hoping that certain therapies can work in some cases, but also it's just something that you, you, you don't recover from necessarily. It's, it's really yeah. hard to manage and, like, and it's hard to watch. The movie's hard to watch, but also at the same time, there's like, I mentioned a lot, <laughs> a lot of compassion for both the, the husband and the wife and yeah. you get to experience it from both perspectives more or less. Yeah. I think she is like a very compassionate person and that comes through in her movies. She kind of, she really shows kind of like the good and bad in people like um, just as they are um, and not in a very critical way, just kind of like all people are flawed here's, here's all of that. (laughs) Um, and I'm not, she doesn't, it doesn't seem judgmental in any way. It's just like life is what happens when flawed people kind of bump up against each other (laughs) and other things happen. Um, yeah, she doesn't judge Grant 
for his infidelity. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in another movie, you kind of would expect that or expect it to be, you know, harped on in some degree, but it's just something that happened that even he struggles with. Uh, and you know, at one point even wonders, is this some sort of punishment for what he's done and yeah. experiences guilt a lot? Uh, and yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a pretty remarkable work of art from you know, someone who continues to <laughs> just like, you know, like I said, I, when I, when I hear her talk either about her films or just her own personal experiences, uh, I'm kind of just like, man, you, you get it. <laughs> You know, in, in, in a way that's so um, powerful to experience in her work. And this one, I, I again, use the word humanizes uh, a lot. Uh, it's, 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 it's really powerful to watch a, a movie because this could be like a disease of the week thing, like a lifetime yeah. approach or whatever. And it's not, it's not a lifetime hallmark approach to it because there is, some darkness. There's the reality of what happens to both people. Um, and again, it's difficult to know that you can still lose someone, even if they're still alive. And that's, that's hard (laughs) in, in general to think about. Uh, and yet, you know, the, the mind just sort of has to go the way it's going to go. And you sort of have to live with that. Uh, but no, I think both of these performances should have been, Oscar winners as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I think Julie Christie was nominated for an Oscar. I don't know if she won. I don't think so. Yeah. She's just so good. (laughs) I think my, I liked the first like third of this movie, the best Mm. when she's just sort of slowly deteriorating and they're up in, well, it's where they live, I guess this cabin in the snow. Um, It's just like a very memorable place. Um, yeah, it's like a very cool setting. And also you find out they've been living there for a long time, like 12, 12 years, and that it was it belonged to her parents before that. So she has a lot of memories here in this cabin. Um, but even so, she starts to lose track of where she is. Um, and I think the most powerful scenes of hers to me are the ones where um, she's losing it. She's like losing her train of thought. And you see her losing her train of thought and also recognizing like what's happening and what that means all at the same time. Um, yeah. It's just like very, very powerful acting. Um, and yeah, I feel like I've seen that body before in real life, you know, mm-hmm. I've like, I've caught that moment. So it was, it's just like very authentic to. Yeah, and Julie like- Christie is just like, gorgeous she's so beautiful luminous yeah yeah i i i am mm, when she says i think i may be getting to disappear oh there's yeah some, there's something that line about reading that. is incredible yeah yeah that uh yeah and you know and like the the cross-country skiing they they sort of do for exercise and everything and then suddenly she doesn't recognize where she is that's really haunting and yeah, everything about this pretty much works. And it's again, a a testament to her talent early on as a storyteller. And I, I, I'm sure working with the, the, the many directors that she's worked with in the past helped inform that, but she still has her own 
her own originality, her own voice, and uh, a, a sense of poetry in, in the way she captures the scenery throughout, whether it's the, the cold, snowy environment in the cabin here versus the, the, the contrasting sunniness of Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it's I, love, I love the sense of place in this movie. It's like mm. not a place I'm familiar with in Toronto, but I can feel that it's Toronto and it's like, yeah, I love, I love that about it. Yeah. It's interesting how people who live in that area will cite this as, as being incredibly accurate and capturing, you know, in, in ways that like some movies, you know, I think of like something like even like the fugitive really captures really cool parts of Chicago that are not normally, showcased in film it's like mm-hmm. not everything is ferris bueller where they just have to go to wrigley field or whatever <laughs> uh but like I, I think a lot of people who, who who live in toronto recognize a lot of the locations um yeah and and, and the other the other one i think people bring up too it's like the darker side of toronto is um denis villeneuve's enemy that film uh, was filmed in Toronto, but it's more murky and dark and and, and brown. <laughs> yeah. uh, sepia well, tone. I mean, that's like Villeneuve for you, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Murky uh, and dark and brown. Mm-hmm. But a- a- as much as I love Polly's other two films, this Take This Waltz kind of has a special place in my heart. Uh, a lot of people have <laughs> they kind of know from past episodes my feelings about it. Uh, and I've written a very lengthy review on Letterboxd. It's again, it's, you know, I don't want to say indulgent. That's not the right term, <laughs> but I, I, I feel a lot watching this movie. This is her first original feature script. It stars, uh, speaking of luminous, Michelle Williams, uh, mm-hmm. as Margot, who is an aspiring writer married for around five years to Lou played by Seth Rogen. And he's a chicken cookbook author who (laughs) mostly adores her. It seems, you know, but I mean, he gets annoyed with some of her childlike behavior. And I want to talk about that. Uh, Honestly, (laughs) it's, 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 it's interesting now. Like, I don't know. I, when I first saw it, I, maybe I was kind of oblivious to it or not really processing it early on when I first saw the film. But uh, over time, I kind of go, hmm, I'm not sure about some of this character's behavior at times. And I don't know if that's intentional to for us to you know, question, like, why is she acting? Like, what is, what is her deal? Because I think even at one point, this... Um, figure of lust this bachelor artist daniel played by luke kirby uh he, he i think at one point because she ugh, one of the one of the more eye-rolling scenes is when uh she calls him gaylord or whatever <laughs> like oh my god yeah that, <laughs> that, that moment I, I i would actively like to ask sarah polly about you know, that choice, because I, I mean, again, it makes me uncomfortable, but it's also very weird. And even he points it out. He's like, what are you like 12 years old in 1992 or something? Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's good to point out. Cause I, I don't know 
if she's entirely sympathetic, like I, you know, we can talk about, but also we have um, kind of an interesting dynamic with, with her friend and sister-in-law, Geraldine played by Sarah Silverman, a recovering alcoholic. Um, And as much as I want to highlight why I do love this movie, ultimately, I want to hear your thoughts on this because I, I can understand someone not connecting with it (laughs) as strongly. And I've come across people who do hate this movie. Um, I don't hate it. It wasn't, I definitely didn't care for it when I saw it the first time. Um, But I also, the second time I still really don't like Margot, especially Mm. like don't like watching her interact with her husband. And I think they didn't belong together. Um, I just might be right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. And, but uh, yeah. So in terms of like, the performances, I have some trouble with them. I have some trouble with Michelle Williams in this. And like my, I have this feeling, um, and I don't know if this is like a bias because Sarah Polly is an actor and because she is an actor probably has a specific, like a certain way of working with actors that directors who don't have that experience may not have. And I was like, I wonder if she was like a little too generous with Michelle Williams here and didn't really like edit her when she could have or should have. Um, that's like my, my theory, but I don't know. (laughs) Um, I just think that this performance gets a little, like, I don't know, carried away in a way that kind of loses me. Um, so that's nice. I'm actually glad to get this perspective from you because, um, uh, my, my friend Sharon, who was on the Chantal Ackerman episode had a pretty visceral reaction to Marco and her behavior. Uh, just found it really, really off-putting, uh, and it's and it's interesting because I I mean I guess that is a, a legitimate response because even I even as I'm watching it, I think if I was with somebody who acted like that on a regular basis or or, or did the baby talk thing, I would address it and I'd be like, <laughs> it's, I'm not I, it's, that's I'm not enjoying this what you're doing. Right. Yeah, it's weird. It's not it's not sexy. If my partner was doing that, I'd be like, "Why do you want me to infantilize you? Like what are you, what is where is this coming from?" And I think I mean, I think Sarah Polly's aware of that. Um definitely. I think it's really interesting when she ends up leaving her husband for the Luke Kirby character that she tries to do the baby talk with him and he shuts it down. Yeah. Um, he's like, "I love you." <laughs> and he's like, he like takes his hair head in his hands and he's like, I love you too. Like he's just like not going to play along. Um, which is part of what makes me feel like that's a better pairing, at least for the moment. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I just, sometimes you need, yeah, you need to be with someone who is able to be like, I don't like this. <laughs> or like, um, and just like, at least call you out in a nice gentle <laughs> way. It's not like you have to be angry or mean about it, but it should be addressed. I mean, I like, I feel like Seth Rogen does that at one point when they're getting flirty in the kitchen and they're on top of one another on the floor and she's trying to be sexy. And he's like, don't do the baby talk thing. And she gets really offended suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, you should be doing that more, dude. oh man but there because it i don't know i also like 
I guess cringe is the best way for me to describe that behavior right now. Um, but I wonder if that's like, intentional. That's what I yeah. think. It is, and I think so it is. Smart, you know? It's very hard to watch, but it, it also is like, well, these are like very intimate moments. Um, and I think one of one of the most interesting scenes is like when she's apparently trying to seduce him, her husband, uh, whose name is, I'm sorry, I keep on forgetting. Um, Lou. The character is Lou. Okay. She's like, apparently, or she claims that she's trying to seduce him and he rebuffs her. And then she like cries and claims that he's being, or that she was trying to do something really brave and that he like quashed her bravery. And now she's like, not going to try anymore. (laughs) Um, That, I mean, there was like something very real about that interaction that definitely feels like, like a real lover's quarrel (laughs) where like, um, Oh yeah. There's something simmering under it that they're not really talking about what they're talking about. And so what they are talking about sounds totally ridiculous. Um, (laughs) So that, that felt very real. And I think a lot of, a lot of their interactions do feel really real in that way. But then there are just other moments where I'm like, another thing was the, their uh, ongoing joke about killing each other with kitchen gadgets, which just like often rang false to me. Like it was Mm. just like they did it too much and it didn't feel real after a certain point. I'm torn about that because I'm, on one hand, it's almost like an extension of uh, a scene in Punch Drunk Love where Emily Watson and Adam Sandler do that while they're in bed. And it's yeah. kind of cute and weird <laughs> in, yeah. in, in ways that Punch Drunk Love is throughout the entire movie. And then in here, it seems a little more jarring. And But at one point, like they, they go too far with what they say and they point that out. <laughs> You know, it's like, yeah. no, that was, no, you can't say that. That wasn't cool. Uh, yeah. I don't know if and I liked it either now. <laughs> Before, yeah. I think I just kind of like rolled with it. But I, I'm I'm of the opinion that maybe that's one of the flaws uh, in the writing is deciding to have that little running joke with them. Because I don't know. I, again, that's not something I would do with my partner. <laughs> but, you know. Right. But, and like but that is like a thing (laughs) that they have. They have like these two weird modes of being together. And when they don't have, when they aren't in one of those modes, things don't really work right. So it's like, they're either doing baby talk or they're like joking about maiming each other with melon ballers. Um, But they can't seem to have a real conversation. (laughs) Um, So I know there's like that one, their anniversary scene. Um, they're just like struggling to have a conversation at this restaurant. Um, mm. And it's like really sad. And it's also the only time that you see them eat something that he didn't make. And there's just kind of like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of disconnection and sadness going on. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard though, because I think at some points in a relationship, especially when you've known each other for so long that sharing silence, like, like on one hand, I'm like on his side. On the other hand, I can understand that being uncomfortable, especially for your anniversary to not really be engaging with one another. Uh, Yeah. You know, but at the same time, it's like, 
yeah, you don't always have to be talking. You know, <laughs> we can yeah, just be sitting I, here I, enjoying I, our meal. I agree with that too. I'm on both sides of this of this disagreement, but it is yeah. weird that they can't have a conversation about anything. And it's just like one of the things that makes me feel like, I mean, I don't think the point of the movie isn't really for anyone to be like, yeah, she doesn't belong with him. It was good that she did what she did. But like, I like that it has it. I like that this film makes you have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really interesting about it. Oh. That like, yeah, everybody, I mean, even if you hate this movie, you definitely have an opinion about it or about their behavior uh, the choices that are made and all of that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm such a huge fan of punch drunk love it. It's another film about a rather unusual relationship and a protagonist with very odd social cues. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think in both films, the characters don't always behave like human beings or like they don't talk. And I think that bothers people like the lack of realism and maybe it, it veers into surreality or, or to some degree, like, their actions aren't, I don't know. It's, it walks this weird line where, I mean, to me, the film is about entropy and restlessness and, you know, kind of not knowing if you're going to be happy. And she's certainly immature. And, you know, even from the first shot, I I think she's depressed and dissatisfied with how things have turned out. Uh, And yeah, is she acting childlike? because she's not ready to be an adult, you know, like she seems to be mostly engaged with the young niece, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, at at the dinner parties that when the family gets together, like that's, that's her joy because she gets to act like a child around her with a child. Uh, And so I don't know if she's experiencing like that rested development and maybe even Lou is experiencing that with just, you know, focusing on chicken all the time. I don't know, but it's like, that's also his profession. I, I mean, that's, that's what he's, you know, he's making a cookbook. So it makes sense that he would only be doing that uh, to get the recipes right and everything. But uh, yeah. early on, she says that she's fearful of connections. Like I don't like being in between things, you know, um, th- there are moments like that. And when they first go to uh, uh, Daniel's apartment where she has like little, mo- like moments in, in a monologue or two where, you get some insight as to why she's ultimately unhappy and might be unhappy in general, not just in a marriage, but because he even says, I think that's one of the lines I really like from Daniel, who is a character I don't necessarily like. <laughs> yeah. I don't uh, like him either. <laughs> you know, but he, I like, he might even say he might, does he use the word restless? Cause he says, you seem kind of, restless in a permanent he way does, he does say that yeah 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 um yeah but let's talk about some audacious moments in this because at one point in a coffee shop out in public margot asks daniel what he would do to her mm-hmm. and that is it, it's like a form of sexting <laughs> practically. With, yeah. That's a scene that I do really, really like in this movie. I think yeah. It's, a, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of odd that like, okay, you know, I'm doing this out in the open in public with possibly other people hearing. I'm, but you know, I'm willing to forgive that because again, the vulnerability, the literal sort of, uh, you know, the, the just the, the way he's being that forward and, 
direct and honest in a way that she's probably not used to, especially with being with her husband, because he probably would not say those things to her. And she needs to hear those things probably to some degree. Uh, but, and th- another moment I, I, again, it might spell out the themes of the movie directly from a character, but the, um, the showering scene, I, yeah. I think again, uh, talk about, you know, <laughs> literal nakedness and vulnerability from, uh, everyone there as they're sort of talking about, you know, sort of hinting at the fact that she's be interested in something new and new things get old. And we, we have a, you know, sort of contrasting uh, separation between women of a certain age and uh, you know, body shape and size uh, and then contrasted with, you know, Michelle Williams and Sarah Silverman and, and another friend that are all younger. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that moment I really love again, that's, that's Polly's yeah. strengths as a visual storyteller, but obviously for me, <laughs> the, the, uh, the clear uh, pinnacle of the film that floors me and has always floored me is the, um, the scrambler ride. I, mm-hmm. uh, I think done entirely without dialogue that's again true visual storytelling at its best. Their attraction is is unconsummated, but it's there. The tension is palpable, uh, and it's all accompanied by one of my favorite songs ever, <laughs> by the Buckles. Yeah, it's a good song, and it's it's just played in this whole other context because I've always associated with that song as being joyful, even though. It's a song about how something new killed something old. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a minute to really understand why that song was being deployed. I was like, this is an interesting choice, but if you think about it, it does. um, It resonates in that way. Um, But I think there's also something in there about just, um, No, this might be a reach, but I think no, go she for is, it. she's a filmmaker. She is interested. She's really interested in video. Um, and like she Ooh. uses eight, like super eight in two different movies. So I'm just, I was kind of thinking about like that touchstone too, um, about like video killing the radio star, but also um, video being really great <laughs> on its own. <laughs> um, and like an important like development um in terms of like rock history so that like that's just like a weird song for those things in general um oh God, there's so many layers you can go to because the fact that that was the first music video that played on mtv yeah yeah that's, that's the that's the that's the dawn of a whole new era for rock and roll and uh the music video genre like the just the the, the form the music video form was this whole thing for so long. Oh, and I miss it. <laughs> I, I loved turning on MTV and not only discovering a new band that way, but seeing something visually striking to accompany it. I mean, yeah, uh, I, almost, I, I almost feel like, I mean, technology, like the video technology and Sarah Polly is an interesting thing just because, um, like she's talked about having like a really emotional attachment to super eight film, um, which is interesting to me. Cause it's just like, not my era. Um, like mm-hmm. 
I don't have that. I don't, we don't have any of that in my house. So like, to me, it almost seems hokey, but then like listening to her talk about it, I like, I get it. She has a real emotional attachment to like home movies um, and like the way they looked and it's really tied up in her past and her memories. Um, To me, like when watching them, I was like, this is like a shortcut to getting that feeling. But then I listened to her talk about it a little bit and I was like, okay, I get that. Um, but yeah, it's just not my era. Like home movies by the time I was young were already really different than that. <laughs> so. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. I made them on VHS. Yeah. I certainly did that. And uh, yeah, they're, it, it's weird because I want to make something that comments on that to some degree. Uh, it's, it's this weird meta idea that I have where it's like, I want to get together with my old friend from high school and make something, mm-hmm. but make that part of the movie. I mean, I guess that's stories we tell to some degree, but yeah, also, yeah. but also like I, I have an iPhone. So I'm like, well, I should try making a movie on an iPhone because I never tried that before. I'm so used to home video or using a giant camcorder on a VHS VHS tape. That's how we did it back in the day. So it's like, it would be ultimately be, co- be this commentary on technology and how it, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's just something I like thought of late one night and I'm like, I might just put together a trailer and then see if we can actually start filming next year and maybe it'll become something. And maybe it won't. I've certainly started projects that don't get finished. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we'll I see. Mean, you know. Like Sarah Polly would say to go for it if she was here. Oh, good. Well, I, I'm glad to hear that from you or her. And <laughs> uh I I I again like I I've written about this movie and I can recognize the flaws and I can recognize like ugh, I don't know, that Daniel guy, I don't I don't understand it, but I guess he's hot, so all right, <laughs> you know. Why does she go for him? It's just something new. He's something cool. He's going to, I guess, introduce her to threesomes and all this stuff. Like that, that, that take this waltz sequence is pretty, uh, who, uh, stunning and, uh, unexpected. Um, that's another thing. I, another part of the movie I do like, um, how the camera just spins around and how, the their place starts out empty and just becomes furnished as they go along mm-hmm. and and live and have sex mostly in these in this montage um but then eventually they kind of settle into a more long lasting kind of relationship and they're just sitting yep. on the couch together and i think that's when the i love you thing happens <laughs> um at the very end of that yeah and that's and ultimately does the cycle continue is what I wonder with that ending, you know? Um, Cause she's alone this time on the scrambler. Same song. Yeah. Is it a sad, do you see it as it being sad? I mean, I guess ambiguity. I, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily one of those things you can lump into it being a sad ending or a happy ending. Uh, it's more or less just another step for her to take and maybe she just needs to be comfortable being alone. I don't know. Like she needs to find herself and find her identity um, without either Lou or Daniel is it's kind of how I would want to reframe or how I would frame that ending is it being 
somewhat positive because maybe she'll just be alone and that's what she needs to some degree. I think, yeah. Um, I'm not sure how to interpret it either, but I do think it's important that she's like alone. Um, and that, uh, like ultimately your longest relationship in life is with yourself. Um, it's it's kind of important to like get right with yourself. Um, and I know like that's Susan, not Susan Sarandon. What am I talking about? Um, (laughs) her sister-in-law. Oh, Sarah Silverman. Sarah Silverman. There it is. There it is. Um, how she is really critical of, of her choice because she's like, there's life has a gap in it. It just does. Um, like everybody is unhappy to a certain degree. You don't go crazy trying to like fill that gap. Um, but in my mind, I don't think that's like really what, uh, really what Margot is doing. Um, I, I like I I don't know like what Sarah Polly is or like the movie's take on this whole movement is, um, but I think I mean I, I think I said this before with a different movie, but people change and that's okay, and I think it's better to recognize when you have needs that aren't being met and to like make a choice to change them than to kind of settle for what you've got. And I think sometimes it's like important to make that choice. And I think making that choice uh, probably changes her a lot. It's like the primary thing she does in this movie is just like make a choice (laughs) to leave. Mm -hmm. And I I also like how Lou there, there's a scene with them after they've been separated a while and she Oof. does seem like she's having regrets and he's like, this isn't a thing that you can take back. Like you've, you've done it. Um, and I think that's a really special moment too, where he's just like, um, like you changed our dynamic irreparably. Um, I'm like, I'm different now too. I'm going in a different direction. Things are different now. So yeah, I don't know like if what viewers are supposed to make of her decision. And I know a lot of people probably people probably don't like it. And like maybe it is the wrong choice, but I still think I still kind of feel like she needed to do it. And so that's like kind of what I think about the last scene is just her yeah. like realizing ultimately the ride is just her to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah i mean and uh, yeah this this movie i think because it creates some discomfort or questionable decisions from its characters i actually it makes me appreciate it more because human beings are incredibly imperfect and they don't always make the right decisions or they act weird or awkward or you know and i guess that's that's again the humanity coming through with Sarah Polly and, but I, I, it's, it's almost like she wanted to challenge the audience. And I think whenever a filmmaker does that, I appreciate it more than not, you know, I, I, th- I think it's, it's one of those things where I understand. And I've said this about films that I've loved that I, I also understand that people wouldn't love, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm appreciative of, of, of when, 
a director decides to challenge my expectations as to how things are going to go or play out. And a lot of scenes in this really do that for me, even if there are. Yeah. There's like cringy things. Yeah. There's some awkwardness. Um, but yeah, ultimately I think it's a really thought provoking movie. And I wonder, I think, I mean, it ties directly into her documentary that like, it's hard to watch this having seen that and not, think that she's trying to make sense of her own life in some way like um, hey you brought it up i was gonna bring it up you did it (laughs) yeah exactly like i mean essentially this is like it could be a story about her parents in a way like could be her her mom um so yeah yeah Yeah, but i mean overall a lot of a lot of my appreciation for the film too is my appreciation for what Sarah Polly does, but also Michelle Williams instantly became my favorite actress after blue Valentine. So uh, I'll watch anything she does. I think she's extraordinary. I was thinking about blue Valentine too, when I was watching this, Um, because you definitely get the sense in both that she had a lot of freedom um, and that there was like a lot of improvisation and her kind of like settling into character. Oh yeah, the director of Blue Valentine was hugely influenced by Cassavetes and sort of let the actors do their thing and create the characters themselves. Yeah. Wow. She and Ryan Gosling have really good chemistry. That was like a really <laughs> a really fun thing to see. Yeah, that movie destroyed me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, both kind of do because they they they, they in different ways reflect experiences I've had in relationships, not necessarily like a hundred percent, but I I've experienced what these characters have experienced. And certainly, you know, like you mentioned that scene where they, she breaks down and is like, I was trying to be brave for you. Yeah. And he just goes, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) And I, I never, I never got that direct, but I was, I would say, what, what? what do you mean? I don't understand what you mean, you know? So that's those moments really do resonate. And I recognize like, yeah, I was definitely a dick at some points in a relationship and, you know, it can happen and you don't necessarily intend it to happen. It just, you know, you say the wrong thing or you do the wrong thing and you hopefully work through it together, but not, not everybody can. But speaking of working through something, yeah. <laughs> Story we tell. Wow. Yeah. She um she's gone on record to sort of say that she loves documentaries more than um even fictional feature narratives. Like she loves documentaries. And it, like she I think what's always held her back from going down that route is telling stories of other people's lives and you know risk you, you know um not being an, an true enough or, or at least, you know, you, you're ta- you're telling personal stories about people's lives directly in that way. There are ethical boundaries and, and like all sorts of things that you have to think about uh, when you're telling a true story and it involves real people. Uh, and so it, it makes sense that why not turn the camera on her and her own family in a way that is similar to this uh, filmmaker, Ross uh, Mecklewee, who made um, Sherman's March 
And I think he, he even says in the film that it seems like I'm filming my life in order to have a life to live. Wow. <laughs> so it, yeah, it becomes like this kind of meta contextual sort of experience where, you know, the, the storyteller and director become a part of the story in a very immersive revealing way. And uh, he, he was kind of known to do that where it would suddenly become about him and what he's feeling in those, in a lot of his documentaries, I haven't seen them all, but uh, the, the, I, people again can find that indulgent, you know, like, like I'm talking about, I'm worried about talking about myself on a podcast, but you know, in a documentary where you're trying to tell a story about something and then suddenly you decide that you want to become a part of that something, is that indulgent? No, I don't necessarily think so. It depends. There are certain cases where like, even I, I don't always like Michael Moore's approach to, for him to be so directly in front of the camera all the time. Uh, but in this case, of course, because I love Sarah Pauly, I'm like, I'm excited to learn about her. I'm excited to learn about her family. I'm excited to learn, you know, about her journey and mm-hmm. what what she's been through regarding the sudden loss of her mother at a very young age. And then, you know, the obvious uh, discovery of the fact that, you know, she's tracking down her biological father, you know, just because the whole family is like, hmm, you don't necessarily look like the, the, the father you've grown up with. And, you know, that becomes a really interesting narrative in of itself. But um, the father that she has grown up with, Michael, you know, he's, he's written a memoir and he's narrating the film. Uh, so it's, it's, it's just a, it, it, like it becomes about itself. <laughs> like yeah. the movie becomes about itself in late later on that I love that it sort of sneaks up on you. And clearly you learn that w- what we've been watching aren't home movies or not super eight movies that are actually of Diane, Sarah Polly's mother. And I think people there are, were. There are a few that are real, though, right? I think there might. Be I a think so. Yeah. No, but I they, think so. They mix really seamlessly with the reenactments. It's um, you like, and especially because whoever they have playing her mom really looks a lot like her mom. No so kidding, very, right? Yeah, it's it's a really cool effect. I have to say, and yeah. I think it fooled me both times. I've seen it <laughs> like <laughs> this time, like towards the end. I was like. Like right before they show her making the movies, I was like, wait a second. Like, this is an awful lot of footage of her mom that they have access to. <laughs> and then I like lifted up and was like, oh, that's right. It's not real. Um, yeah, it's re- it's interesting. I think people did feel like, oh, she pulled the rug out from under us. That's <laughs> not cool. I don't know. I feel manipulated. But damn it, storytelling is manipulative in a good way, you know, and in, in a way that's supposed to grab your attention but we also have to realize that it's filtered through subjective perceptions, including her own family members. Like I think it's one of her brothers at one point goes, you know, what do you think this film is about? Turn the camera around. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I love that. I, I really like that it is a film about her family. Cause she has a lot of intimacy with them that makes oh, the God, interviews yeah. really fun. Cause they have moments like that. Um, and yeah, because like, I mean, she doesn't turn the camera on herself, but she could definitely be a talking head in this movie too. It's like part of her story. 
Um, but yeah, I love that um, each person is given their time to tell the story from their perspective and how those stories and imp- interpretations um, don't always align. Um, so there are these just kind of like holes where you're like, all right, well, which is, which is the way it really was. And they just never get resolved. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite ones is when she's talking to the guy who ends up being her biological father. And he has like a very uh, strict view of how the story should be told, which he is just like not <laughs> abiding by at all. But it's like really funny to me. He's like, um, only me and her know this story like only the people involved know the story and like most of you weren't involved. Um, yeah. And it's really funny that she leaves that in. And it's just like, it's also just really funny because to me, it's just like really obviously not true. Um, but he is very adamant that only he really knows the story, um, which is just funny. <laughs> and I'm glad that I'm glad that it's in there. Yeah. I, I think I had some, suspicions when I first saw it, like the moment where they're reenacting in the restaurant, uh, like their discovery that, Oh, you are my father. I'm like, because it's filmed, I guess in super eight and it's almost like archival footage, even though I'm like, wait a minute. Did they, was that actually filmed? (laughs) No, it's another reenactment. You know, it's like, it, it walks that fine line. It's this kind of hybrid, uh, you know, like it's part, like reconstructing the past part documentary part, like family therapy session in certain points. Uh, and it, it, it sort of showcases to why people even make films or documentaries as a way to like, remember the past, but reframe it so you can share it with others. But you also have to realize, you know, much like with memory, truth is fuzzy, you know, and certainly we all have our interpretations of what it is because we're the ones talking about it uh, in the same way that we talk about movies, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's your perspective. I mean, it right. could be similar to mine for sure, but it's, I, I think that's what makes me appreciate uh, listening to people tell stories or even tell, you know, share their opinions because I'm, that's what I'm fascinated by. I'm fascinated by the other person. I, I've always told people this and it seems to still hold true is that yes, I'm talking on a podcast, <laughs> but I'm more excited about listening, you know, and listening to what my guest has to say or listening to other people's. It's similar to when I walk out of a movie, I'm excited to read a review, Uh you know, and see, see what they had to say, see what their experience was with it. And in, in a way that's what like Sarah's is, is genuinely curious about what other people think and feel about Diane and, you know, just what, like what, what is their interpretation of the events, you know, and that there is ultimately not a singular set in stone truth to who she was because she's also not here to tell her story too. Right. And I think that like one of the things that made me think of was that, I don't know, people are contradictions. Like maybe these differing accounts of her, because they differ actually capture a reality about her. Mm. Um, and yeah, she'll, we'll never know cause she's not around, but 
I think it, it could be like very true that she told one person one thing and one person another thing about her feelings because she probably was feeling both of those things. Oh, <laughs> Theo, oh yeah. Theo agrees. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Theo, for your <laughs> perspective. <sighs> Sorry. He's it's okay. Kind of a brat. Um, no, I'm interested in what what other people, but also what other animals have to say. But no, I mean, yeah, what you're saying is is absolutely true, and it, it, you know, it, it, I can't like I can't imagine being in in um, Michael's position either. Too, it's 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 kind of hard. I, I imagine, it, and we sort of see that, you know, when he sort of realizes it that oh but at the same time that doesn't change our past in a way you know it's we've grown together i've taken care of you and we still have a relationship and we get to actually experience that relationship and i also love the fact that she kind of breaks the fourth wall in some instances showing the filming process but also being in the uh, recording studio and saying uh can you try that line again oh (laughs) yeah those are those moments are all fun. Yeah, it, it makes you really involved in the process of how she's deciding this story should be told. Um, and we don't always get that experience. I mean, there are examples of documentaries that sort of are self-referential or, or very reflective of the of the storyteller, uh, and they get heavily involved. Something like Tarnation, which is really kind of heavy and, and, and wild, you know, um, another, another documentary. that's sort of about, uh, mental health issues and it's mm, hard to watch at times for sure, but also revealing like people who decide to turn the camera on themselves often, um, when they have an engaging story to tell, I'm a hundred percent on board when they decide to do that. But also, you know, sub- subjectivity, memory, they're fallible. It can't, be a hundred percent factual because we don't always remember the color of a car the way it actually was. That's why, that's why I've always been skeptical about the criminal justice system, (laughs) Right? Yeah, you know, like relying on memory and remembering certain details, which I I guess that's kind of explored in a film like 12 angry men to some degree. Um, Because we remember selectively, but we perceive selectively and stories we tell, ultimately has like this intricate structure of narrative levels that even questions its own (laughs) factual accuracy. Yeah. Uh, That's just like a sign of somebody really intelligent. I mean, I I brought up the fact that she's incredibly self-aware and articulate and, you know, really smart about so many things uh, to, to where I'm like, uh, I mean, she's taking her time to, to complete her next project. I'm sure. But uh, it's, it feels like too long (laughs) (laughs) had a new movie or a a new story from her. Um, When this was shown at the very first Chicago critics film festival. uh, Yeah. This was, I think the first movie that was ever shown there and she was there. She had an amazing Q and a, as you would expected. But um, you know, as she was walking out, I told her that uh, I loved this movie so much and it made me, rethink my own father who died at a young age and 
he um, at one point was unfaithful. And I all I when I was young and he tried to talk to me about like I think I was twelve or thirteen. Uh, you know, he took me out for pizza after my mom got very upset and he, and instead of like just leaving me in the dark, he wanted to bring me in Mm. and, you know, uh, help try to help me understand what was going on. And I guess seeing this movie brought up that experience of, you know, him trying to come to terms with what he's done, but also, you know, involve me in, in, what he was feeling. So I, it wasn't all just like, he is evil. I, I you know, like yeah, he yeah. did a horrible, horrible thing. And, you know, I, I, I th- again, empathy for sure. And, you know, Sarah Polly has that here. And I, t- and I told her all, like, like it made me rethink a lot about my own past in a great way. Uh, and she was very responsive and appreciative of that. And I told her, it almost makes me want to tell this story uh, and make my dad the, the, the main focus. And she's, she's like, okay, but just don't do it the way I did. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I'd probably end up doing it as a podcast anyway, <laughs> you know, but I, I don't know. It's just, it's just, um, it's incredible. Like I said early on to how all of her films have made me think about things that have happened. But this one in particular uh, is just kind of a remarkable experience for her and also for my own family in, in some ways. So I'm yeah, grateful. Think- and I'm also just like um, amazed by this story and the, you know, and how, how cool her, her, her two fathers are. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Um, yeah. Her whole big family network is all, they're all very like kind and open and generous. Um, yeah. Like very understanding about the whole thing, which is amazing. Um I mean, you don't see like how much processing it took them to get to that point, but it's great that they're all there by the point where this is made. Um, Yeah. I almost feel like all of her movies to some extent are kind of about like the failure of monogamy (laughs) as a relationship style. Um, Not like the failure. Very good. Very good. That's a very good observation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not like, I think just like, I mean, life has a gap in it, I guess. Um, I think there's no attachment style that's really perfect. Um, like, I can't imagine myself being polyamorous. Uh, I don't think that would work for me. Um, but I like, I think there, to a certain extent, monogamy doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, and yeah. affairs are something that come out of that just because we're I don't people need bigger communities than I think we're allowed to have in this culture in Western culture at this point in time um and I I just think like a lot of the things about the way life is structured are very harmful to us um and like we end up hurting each other um because of it so I I think this movie is a really interesting look at like what a family can look like. Um, Cause it's just, it's very sprawling um, and requires a lot of negotiation, I guess. Uh, and a lot yeah. of communication and openness and um, honesty, which is <laughs> like not something that everybody can do. Um, no, but it seems to come naturally for her. And it's like, 
yeah. yeah, we're 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 wired to connect on sometimes deeper levels, and uh, again, playing with the subconscious. I, we we don't always know why we're drawn to certain people, and how that evolves, or if it crosses a boundary of some kind in the end. And how how do you deal with that if you do cross the boundary? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's 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 tricky. Because, you know, I've, I personally never have felt wired for, for polyamory either. And yet at the same time, you sort of have to come to terms with the fact that you will be attracted to other people when you're, when you're in a long-term relationship. It's just kind of natural, but also, you know, you don't have to act on it either. You can just sort of uh, accept the fact that that's kind of how human beings are wired to you know, not, not necessarily like try to have uh, emotional affairs or start texting with these people that you're attracted to on a regular basis or something, you know, but you can uh, just acknowledge the fact that we're, we're, we're social creatures and sometimes that desire. And I, you know, again, I think take this waltz is a, is a strong movie about feeling desire and what do you do with it? You know, what what yeah i forgot to mention all of the like the smoldering heat in that movie that like kind of evokes that everybody's sweaty (laughs) (laughs) and there's like Like, there's always a fan in like every scene like a stationary fan (laughs) yeah i know it's 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 complicated i think that's what it ultimately comes down to all of these stories are about complicated lives and you know that I, I think that's what makes these films really human to me and just like, Oh, I, I, I understand that. I know where that's coming from. I wouldn't necessarily do that, but I understand it. Uh, and right. even just the desire to, to make a documentary like stories we tell again, I understand that desire that need to try to make sense of who you are through the lives of others or, uh, you know, try to understand your, your, your own personal history through family. Uh, you know, I mean, how many times can we go through photo albums and have all these feelings conjured up about, Oh, I looked like that. And Oh, look at this family member that I, 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 I don't even remember, but they're in my family. It's like, it's, it's wild to kind of go through the yeah. past in a tangible way where you're holding something and not just scrolling <laughs> through a Facebook wall. I think that's, I think that's really special. And the fact that she made a film like stories we tell says a lot about her curiosity and her, um, her, her, her sort of just uh, ease too. I'm sure it wasn't an easy process to edit something like this. I wonder about that. Oh man, it must've taken forever. Probably. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I feel that way about most films too, is like, how, I would love to see, a director and an an editor for like, you know, like a 90 minute documentary. Like how do they decide to, this is where the story begins. How do they decide on this shot versus this other shot? Um, Because like, again, if you put this, this footage in the hand, I think they even say this in the movie. If you put this footage in the hands of somebody else, it'd be a completely different movie. Yeah, that's true. I was wondering about this. um, The, the one sequence when I think she kind of shows all of their, just like all of their reactions, kind of wordless reactions in a row. It's like toward mm-hmm. the end of the movie. And oh, for some reason yeah. I was thinking like, um, at what point in the interview process did all of these reactions occur? <laughs> like when did, and she 
just pasted them together at that point, but they very well could have been um, all over the place. It's just like a cool editing thing. Another thing I have to say about this movie um, is that it's like really striking to see a bunch of different members of a family on screen like this because they all look the same. And it's just like not something it's very, a very different experience from fiction where like, there's always like a suspended disbelief, like, Oh, these people do not look alike, but they're a family, whatever. But there's like something very interesting about um, seeing a bunch of people whose facial features really are like DNA related. It's kind of fascinating. And it makes me feel like, um, something, I mean, there's something in that about, in that, in the movie too about that, where, I mean, they're talking about how Sarah Polly like, doesn't look like her dad, but also at first, I think it's the other guy. Um, oh, sure. And, yeah. I thought that too. And they even yeah, have a little joke before the closing credits, kind of. Because like they fun. resemble each other so much. Like, there is mm-hmm. a really strong resemblance, but it's like, I mean, it may or may not be like the final undercutting of this is that like, it turns out he slept with their mom too, (laughs) Um, which is just like a really funny final note to end on. And it kind of undermines the whole thing. Um, Even though it's pretty. They got a DNA test. So I must. Yeah. It's like 99% certain, but it's still like really undermines the truth of it to me, especially because like on surface level, I really think she does look the most like him. Um, and like, there's something about all those visuals that I think is really fascinating. Um, just like looking at these people and like the story, the story that DNA tells in a way that's like, uh, yeah. like the blood story um, that you can't really articulate, uh, I think is like another feature of this film that's really fascinating to me. Yeah. And and his narration is oh, it's so poignant and, even oh, yeah. early on, he talks about that, you know. Yeah. Uh, just like this is where I came from, and you know, I'm my ancestors passed me down, and th- those ancestors were. It's like you know, just this long line of like, gosh, where did I come from? I came from like a long line of different people and people that I'll never meet, you know, right. or even see pictures of. Possibly, it's just. It's wild. It's just a wild ride, this movie. And such, it makes you think, but also you can just watch this as entertaining, uh, you know, documentary. It's just, again, an autobiographical kind of experience, but it she doesn't make it all about her either. You know, she gives time to her family in ways that are uh, selfless. And I, I appreciate that about, you know, like, and I don't think she's, you know, she's mentioned that too. I don't know if she's necess- she would point the camera at herself uh, in, like in a direct way all the time anyway. And mostly we just see her reacting to certain things here and there, but um, it, it, but it also just highlights too the, you know, the loss of a family or the loss of a parent, especially can create a gap can create a void, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, you, you have this, interest in learning more because again, like I, there's a lot of details about my dad's life that I will never know about. And part of me goes, what if I talked to one of his friends? Maybe I would learn more about him. I don't know. I, but maybe 
he wasn't open about everything with everybody either. So it, it, it's, it's one of those things that you kind of go, I I'm, I have to accept my version of him in my mind as is too. And I, th- I, I don't know what would I find if I went digging further anyway, and would it be interesting? I don't know. So I, but I'm, I'm so glad she did. <laughs> I'm so glad she told this story uh, and all the stories she's told. And she's got another one in the works. It's um, let me see. I know I read about it. It's based on a book. Uh, it's, it's based on a book by Miriam toes Tows. Uh, it's called woman or women talking. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And I'm excited because one of my new favorite actresses is in it. Jesse Buckley. I just, uh, adore. Right I don't now. think I know who that is. She's, uh, in the lost daughter which I highly encourage you to see. That's one that should be on your list. It's directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal and stars Olivia Coleman. Oh, okay. That played at the Chicago film festival, didn't it? Oh yes. Okay. That's probably, <laughs> yeah. that's probably the strongest Jesse Buckley performance I've seen, but also when I officially went, okay, now she's on my list in the same way that I felt about Sarah Polly. Uh, was in uh, Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things, where she uh, kind of pra- she practically carries that movie, to be honest. Again, not a, not a pleasant movie. <laughs> uh, it's, it's difficult to watch, but she, again, I, I, I highly recommend it for her in particular. Yeah, mm. I, I haven't gotten to it, but I, I yeah. always... I always end up getting to his movies. It just takes a while. Take your time. Take your time. That one's, that one's again, that's another tough one. That's another, mm. I had a lot of uneasy feelings while watching it. And then afterwards he had to process, you know, it's Charlie Kaufman. He's, (laughs) you know what to expect in a way when, when you're delving into the mind of, uh, you know, someone with a dark sensibility, but, uh, in general, I, I can't wait to see what she does next. Sarah Polly is on the basis of three films. One of my favorites, uh, somebody I hope to possibly interview in the future. And we'll see. She also did. I, I think this was the first thing I sent to you, right? She has a book coming oh, out. Yeah. I think early next year. It's an essay collection called run towards the danger. It's going to come out in March, 2022. It's a collection of five essays that explore memory (laughs) and the relationship between the past and the present. Uh, I think it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a memoir of sorts. So obviously I'm picking that up first thing. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds cool. I, I would love to hear more about, uh, her experience acting as a kid, especially. So if if she touches on that at all, that would be pretty cool to hear. Yeah. And follow her on Twitter. She's great. Uh, And thank you so much for being here, Kate, Uh, talking about uh, another great uh, female voice. I think um, 
in January, in late January, because early January is all about the year-end stuff, um, in late January, I'm really excited to revisit the work of Jane Campion. Ooh, that's yeah. uh, that, That's got to happen with her, with one of her best films now out. I think it's just playing at the music box right now, but it'll, it will be on Netflix on December 1st. Um, right now it's my favorite film of the year. It's the power of the dog. So you gotta see that. I I definitely want to see it. I need to get myself back to the theater. (laughs) I like, maybe I'm ready. It's just like, I haven't done that. Like the real audience experience in so long. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I've just gone to like very small screenings, but I definitely miss it. And like everybody I know has started going again. So it's kind of like, uh, I've got some FOMO going on. <laughs> I should probably get myself to the theater. Yeah. Well, the music box is always playing something great in my uh, opinion. Yeah. I mean, they've, been, they've been programming great stuff. So that's part of where the FOMO is coming from. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, like, like I said, I, I'm really excited to see whatever Sarah does next and it might be next year. We'll see. I, that would be great. Uh, but also read yeah, her book. I mean, she's still uh, so young. Like she, if she wants to keep working, she has so much time left. So I think there could very, very well be um, Sarah Polly too someday, even if someone else is doing I hope so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll see. Yeah, we'll see what happens with the future holds in store. It's one of those things where I'm like, I still get joy out of this. There's no doubt. Obviously, I love talking about things I love and sharing it with other people and talking with great people like you as well. So, you know, it's it's just one of those things where I'm going to just take it one month at a time and see. Yeah, totally. I mean, you've you've done so much with this show. (sighs) I know. It's hard to, it's, it's just hard to know if I want to keep doing it or move on to something else, you know, and it's, uh, do I, do I have the time? That's the other thing. It's one of those things where I, uh, you know, I'm focused on the career turning out a certain way and I will have less free time if it does turn out the way I would hope <laughs> come okay. next year. So we'll see. But, uh, as for next month, Uh, Despite the fact that we are covering a director with an extensive filmography, we're only going to talk about a few titles, uh, and that would be the legendary Fritz Lang, director of Metropolis and M and many other classics. My guest will be the co-host of Christmas Movies, actually, on the Now Playing Network, Carrie Finnegan, who um, cites Lang as a favorite. So we we might even try and record in person... Uh, around Christmas time, we'll see. Uh, I, I would welcome that, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm especially excited to revisit Metropolis and M because I haven't maybe since I don't know, maybe my twenties at this point. It's been a long time. Yeah, and, uh, I am a fan, but I'm I'm curious to watch a couple of others that I haven't seen. So that'll be a great discussion. And you should visit nowplayingnetwork.net as well as directorsclubpodcast.com or send me an email over at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> gmail.com. We'll see you again around Christmas time for Fritz Lang. And once again, thank you to my great guest, Kate Blair, for joining me. It was fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks for having me. 
happy holidays to you and to everyone else out there listening. Goodbye. Yay. Staring at the same